Emily, did you know one half of job applicants admit to using words they don't really know the meaning of? Okay, you know what? That surprises me less than I uh, perhaps it should. I've definitely thrown the odd long word in there on on the odd job application. There's like a look of time. recognition in your yeah. eyes there, like, yeah. yeah, that's so surprising. That's I haven't done that. So I'm going to be a bit of a horrible teacher now and spring a pop quiz on you, because the Oxford English Dictionary has this month added some new words, and I don't need to get caught out. Okay, hit me. So right, let's go. I'm going to give you a few, and they, they're really good. Do I get to guess what they mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Okay. First word is baffy. It's a kind of afternoon snack that you consume with a cup of tea to stave off the hunger until dinner time. Well, that was so in-depth and, like, I love that. (laughs) But no, it's actually a slipper, especially one that is old and worn out. Next, eeksy, peeksy is now in the Oxford English Dictionary. It's a magical creature from the Harry Potter books. Again, no, but, you know, I think you should actually just, like, take up a job as writing for the dictionary. That's really good. Uh, So that actually means evenly balanced or equal. So if they were like, what personal qualities do you have? I could be like, I'm eeksky peeksky. That was so bad. That's not how you pronounce it. Eeksky peeksky. Yeah, sure. So you can do that. You won't get the job. Can I try yeah. it again? Eeksky peeksky. So the last one I'll give you is situtery. Okay, it's a space where you go to practice your brass instrument, be it the trumpet or the French horn. Uh, I'm playing. actually going to give you a point for that, you know. Thank you. That's like close enough. It's a secluded area within a building where people can sit apart from others. Oh. So, you know, it's up to you whether you play your instrument in there or not. It's like flexible working. Yeah. Very good. So the Purple CV survey where I got these interesting facts from, according to them, 81% of employers say that a job candidate using a word in the wrong sense is unforgivable. And that's in course unforgivable, which I think is intense, but it's unforgivable. So there's our top of the podcast tip. Just don't use jargon you don't understand. Now you've got a few more words in your repertoire. Hello and welcome back to That HR Podcast, your one-stop shop for all things new, unexplored and thought-provoking in the world of people management. I'm Lauren Brown. And I'm Emily Burt. And what a lineup we have for you in this month's episode. Hiya, more Nike. It's me, Sally in HR. It's just the quick... Oh, uh, oh, I'm ever so sorry, love. Mora Nike. Oh, I thought as much. I thought she likes sports shoes. More Nike. Mora Nike. Is that how you say it? Have you heard of Sally in HR? I met actor and activist Kalechi Okafor to talk about how she used an animoji with a questionable attitude towards diversity and inclusion to push conversations around racial microaggressions in the workplace. And I took a road trip to the CIPD's annual reward and benefits conference to ask experts in attendance, is Britain due a pay rise? Plus, everyone's favourite, Tim Pointer, is back with more Tim's Pointers. That's all to come. So I am delighted this month to have Kalechi Okafor joining us in the studio. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you for having me. For those who don't know her, Kalechi is a social commentator, actor, dance instructor, the host of the Say Your Mind podcast and an all-round creative. And most crucially, she is the voice of Sally in HR. Now, if you haven't heard of Sally, you probably should have done. She's an animated HR director of fictional company Plant Acon, and we're going to listen in on one of her phone calls right now. Hiya, more Nike! It's me, Sally in HR. It's just a quick... Oh, uh, oh, I'm ever so sorry, love. 
Moronike. Oh, I thought as much. I thought she likes sports shoes. More Nike. Moronike. Is that how you say it? Moronike. Well, sorry to bring this to you, love. And it is nothing to worry about. It's just a quick one. Just a quick one. Basically, I've had a complaint. Yeah, I've had a complaint from Kathy in finance. Yeah. She says she struggles to find you when she needs to give you your pay slip because you're always changing your hair. You've got different hairstyles. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, no, love. I totally understand that you are the only black person on that floor, but you have to see where she's coming from. You know, data protection and all of that. She wants to just be sure that it's you. I'm sure it's innocent, love. I'm sure it's innocent. There's nothing meant by it, love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Honestly, love, it's all it's more awkward for me than it is for you. Honestly. <laughs> oh no. You what she says in her email, okay? Well, she says here um, that sometimes Morena Kay has short hair, then other times she has bootylicious hair like Beyonce, and other times she has locks like Bob Marley. Honestly, love, I do agree with you. You are the only black person on that floor, and you sit at the same desk with your name on it, but, you know, she is perfectly innocent, love. She's just worried about you. Just worried. She doesn't want to give your pay slip to the wrong person. Yeah, but don't worry. About a thing. Cause Sally and HR will make it all right. Oh, I love a bit of Bob Marley, I do. Oh, the, the moment I saw that in her email, I thought, oh, that hairstyle must have been gorgeous. Hello? Hello? Moronike? Hello? Oh, I think she's hung up. That was Sally, as heard on Kalechi's Say Your Mind podcast. So if you didn't quite pick it up from that clip, Sally is a series of staged phone conversations that call out subtle and not so subtle incidents of racism in the workplace. She exploded into the Twitterverse and kind of the Instagram sphere, I guess, mm. at the very beginning of this year. So Kalechi, tell me about Sally. How did you come up with this character? Sally came about because, as you mentioned, I've got the Say Your Mind podcast and I would often just refer to her in passing. So I always like give characters or archetypes a name. So I just decided that this particular person in HR is called Sally. And I'd always kind of riff off that idea of having this person in HR who doesn't have a clue about diversity, really. But she just likes to throw the term about a lot. And it just grew from there. And I think I was just bored one day. And I noticed that on your phone now, on your Apple, on your iPhone, you can do animojis. Yeah. And I just started designing this Sally in my head, what I thought she looked like and started doing her voice and stuff. And I thought, let me post this. This is this is funny to me. And it went from there. And it has blown up. I mean, mm. this, these are literally viral and they have had thousands of engagements on Twitter, on Instagram, on other channels. Were you at all surprised by how much this resonated with people online? Yes. Yes, I thought that would be a little bit popular because obviously I've got quite a you know, big fan base on Twitter and things like that. But I didn't expect that it would end up in like WhatsApp groups in, I don't know, Sweden. I, I really mm. didn't expect that aunties, you know, African aunties would be sharing it, especially the Moronike episode. They yeah. love that one. That's like their absolute favourite. So, yeah, that shocked me how much it resonated with people. And I'd be really interested to know how much of this is real examples of things that have happened to you or other people and how much of it is dramatic license because certainly I did a very basic search on Twitter just this morning and I found someone who had just tweeted saying you know I don't wear my natural hair colour often 
often, but I did last week. My white manager proceeded to put her hand in it and said it. I looked like I'd put my hand in a plug socket. <laughs> so like, you know, <laughs> I think people might listen to it and go, oh, that's, you know, something. But real examples, right? Real yeah. examples. And I think that what I really try to do with Sally is keep the truth and turn the volume up but then I don't even think I've turned it loud enough mm. because there are people who tell me accounts that they've you know had at work and it's actually worse than anything Sally could have ever come up with and that's what's kind of scary about it and I think that that's why we need to have a conversation about it because it sounds absurd but these are people's like lived realities how must they feel you know going into work and having people like delve their hands into their hair or they go on their staff website and find somebody else's face with their name things like that People are sharing these experiences on social media and certainly for my part, I feel like a lot of white people are still stuck mentally in this very narrow place where they think of racism through a very small lens. Mm. So we say things like, oh, you know, I would never shout racist abuse at someone in the street. I would never physically Mm. attack someone on racial grounds. So I must be fine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But in doing that, we mm-hmm. are excusing ourselves from the really pervasive racial micro and macro aggressions, yes. which are kind of everything that Sally embodies. Yeah. I think that that's what's really important about what you said, that white people tend to see racism as it's an individual thing and it's horrible and it's nasty, as opposed to thinking about it as a construct and a mechanism, really. So in within that mechanism, without realising it, we are contributing to keeping it ticking and ticking and ticking over. And that comes through in the micro and the macro aggression. So it's the little things that we say without realising that we've been socially conditioned to think that way about a specific group of people. And that's what I think is so interesting about Sally because I made a point from when I was developing her that she'd never say race or racism. She'd never mention the terms, but the ways that she'd behave would cover those things. And I think that that's why she's been so popular because the moment some white people hear the word racism, they clam up. They switch around. And, and that's it. You can't have that conversation because society hasn't allowed for a lot of white people to have that emotional capacity to take on the critique that comes from having these discussions. So the best way I thought that I could approach it was for Sally to do these little absurd things and then for people to have a conversation around it and for people to look and think wow but I did that at work today why is that wrong this is why so Kalechi could you talk me through a couple of other examples of microaggressions that Sally has displayed so far Yeah, so Sally's covered a few microaggressions and by microaggressions, you know, these are things that people say and they think that they're really, really well-meaning, but actually they have a racialised undertone to them. So Sally has mentioned before to one of the employees that, oh, I guess this is your first time going on a skate trip, you know, assuming that a black woman would have never been on a ski trip. And then the person responds that, oh, I was actually champion when I was younger. And that catches her off guard. That's a microaggression because you've believed that there's only a specific kind of lifestyle that someone could have had based on their race. Then we've got the incident of food. And I think that food is such a massive thing in the workplace because we can really show racial bias by the way that we talk about food. So Tunde brings uh, jollof rice to work and you know it's a West African sort of spicy rice and she says to him that you know it's too spicy I know you didn't let people taste it but you know they could smell it from across the room and it was just too much it was just too much again people feel like their food and their eating habits are weaponized against them in the workplace especially if it isn't like the quintessential English sort of food which I never really know what that is specifically but I find that really funny you see posters in the canteen or you know in the breakout rooms that says no 
smelly food. And I always wonder, what does that mean? Because all food has a scent. But, you know, it seems like they're speaking about specific sorts of food. So these are the sorts of microaggressions that she comes across. And obviously, a black man being mistaken for another black man when Jamal and Tunde have their pictures put up on the website, but their names have been swapped around. That's dangerous on a societal scale for, you know, just black men generally and being seen as one really intimidating being. And it's just frustrating and humiliating that you're not recognised for being who you are and can easily be mixed up with somebody else. And so why, to come back to Sally, why the decision to make her the HR director specifically? The HR director specifically because I think that HR people, they tend to be gatekeepers for the entire company. So they really, they help to cultivate the culture that then takes place within the organisation. And oftentimes when they're choosing people without even realising it, you know, so Sally says uh, something when she's looking through CVs and she goes, oh, well, uh, I can't really invite them uh, to an interview if I can't pronounce their name. That happens a lot. We've, we've seen stats that people aren't asked, to, you know, people of colour aren't asked to come into interviews just based on their name alone. And their CV is directly like, yeah. you know, identical to somebody else's, but just based on that name, no. So that means that HR people are actually choosing these people and they're dictating what culture takes place. And if we want true change, it has to come through that channel. And that's why I thought I'd give her the responsibility of working in HR because then all of the complaints and all of the things that happen we can kind of see it through her being that kind of device and there was that BBC study which I think is the one that you're talking Mm. about and this was a recruitment study that was done two to three years ago where again two identical CVs were sent out and one of the CVs uh, had Adam for the name the other one had Mohammed Mm. Adam got three times the number of interviews and I feel like we know that racial bias is a huge problem in the workplace Mm -hmm. but I feel like the gap between the fact that we can know this is a problem and actually taking practical action to deal mm-hmm. with that problem is still very wide. And I think if you're in HR, even though this can be a really uncomfortable thing to mm-hmm. confront, it's a huge problem if there's a major part of your workforce who feels alienated and discriminated against yeah. in a regular basis. And we're having conversations about gender in the workplace mm-hmm. at the moment. And I think racism really needs to be as much a part of this It definitely conversation. does. We talk about gender. We talk about a lot of things to do with the construct of gender as we see it in society. And then we don't talk enough about race. So then when we talk about racialized, you know, gendered racism, a lot of people don't understand that. And this is why we use the term misogynoir because there's a specific type of racism that black women face that no other group of women face. And that's what the first few episodes for Sally were about really because, you know, We've got a ski trip and Sally is reading out an email saying, oh, well, you know, you make a war cry when you wake up. But, you know, it was a yawn. (laughs) It's a yawn. Um, So everyday things that black women are seen to do becomes this spectacle within the workplace. So how can they get their work done when they're so hyper visible, yet at the same time invisible when it comes to promotions, when it comes to praise, when it comes to those kind of things? So it's a big conversation. So like you said, we know that race and racial bias is a problem within the workplace. And to deal with it, we don't know how we make our way within that. And it's the talking about it. Once we talk about it, then we can start making some change. If HR are the gatekeepers of organisations, 
what can HR and by extension organisations do to change their approach to diversity to make sure that actual worthwhile sustainable change is being achieved? I think it has to become the culture. It has to become a norm. At the moment, it feels like too much of an anomaly. It feels like too much of a novelty that, you know, we're going to have diversity and inclusion panels and we're going to have these conversations. And most times, these diversity and inclusion panels are just made up of white people talking about something that they don't have any knowledge of, really. So giving the platform to people to inform them on how to move forward, that's really what's needed. And to not make people feel like or to make diversity and inclusion feel like you're doing anyone a favour. You know, like it's the whole thing we had with American affirmative action. There are so many people who are overqualified, yet they are not getting seen. They're not getting seen for the things that they deserve to be seen for. And that happens because they've been taught or we've been taught as black people, most especially black women growing up, that you have to work twice as hard to get half as much. So I will go and do everything I can in my power just to have some say or some platform. And I think that what... HR directors and HR departments can really do to help with these things is to not think of diversity and inclusion as, oh, well, at least I did Black History Month. At least I did this. At least I did that. Just make it the norm to understand that you're going to get things wrong and to take ego out of it and to just aim to be better all of the time. Just be better. Now, obviously, the Marenicki clip of Sally in HR was all about hair discrimination. About a month ago, New York banned hair discrimination in workplaces very specifically and it said you know there's a widespread and fundamentally racist belief that black hairstyles are not suited for formal settings Mm -hmm. and it said that you know you cannot discriminate on this basis Mm -hmm. now and I've seen a few think pieces online saying we should be bringing policies like this into the UK workplace. Mm -hmm. Do you feel encouraged when you see things like this being brought into legislation or is it frustrating that we need this written down? Yeah I think there's the frustration that it needs to be written now in the first place because again what we're saying is that whiteness is the norm and we're going to have to put these things in place just so you can have a half decent life again it's about changing the culture it's about re-educating people on how they view others how they view blackness and things like that simply having a legislation isn't going to do enough I mean we have legislation that says you must employ people regardless of race and all of that and people still aren't what I think will happen should that sort of initiative be brought to the UK and people want to make it legislation is that we're just going to have lots of TV panel discussions about it. You know, everyone's going to be on their good morning or whatever, like breakfast shows, having debates and arguments and screaming, shouting matches about why it's a good idea and why it isn't. And that's a way of distancing ourselves from actually doing the work. The issue with the UK is that we don't talk about race and we don't talk about race because we don't want to address the great in Britain. Like, why is Britain great? Why do we have that term? Because we don't want to talk about the empire really you know people get awards every year mbe obe we don't want to talk about what it means what empire actually means and therefore colonization and things like that so the uk in my view is a bit behind when we compare it to america in having conversations about race until we can even say the word without people getting upset and saying oh i feel like you've attacked me then i don't think that legislation like that 
needs to come in yet because we're not even ready. We're not we're not at that stage. We're not intellectually or emotionally ready for that conversation. You are not at all the first person to actually say that to me. I've had lots of conversations with people like business in the community mm-hmm. and we've had people on this podcast before mm-hmm. who've come on and said, you know, both as a workplace culture and as wider society, we are not yet comfortable discussing race no. in the way that we are comfortable discussing gender in the ways that we're comfortable mm-hmm. discussing, you know, sexuality. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're having rows about a lot of these things at the moment but at least they're on the table at least they're being spoken about I almost want to say like what needs to happen to make us more comfortable but that's a really difficult thing to ask it's Yeah, it's a difficult thing to ask, but I think that it's still a question that we need to address. And I think that that's why I'm so proud of Sally. There are so many people, black people, who love and hate Sally at the same time. She affirms their existence. She affirms the things that they've experienced. But at the same time, there is someone making fun of these things and in a way defanging it, making it less of a monster. And I think that having things like this means that we have more of a conversation. I relish the fact that white women especially because I think white men are a bit more scared to have a conversation with me about it white women will ask me you know about that Moronike thing okay so that happened I really struggle to recognize people or black women when they change their hairstyles what can I do about that I'm just look at people's faces more really be present in the moment and really look at their facial features and really take your time to learn about the individual because that's what it is that the problem is that blackness is seen as a monolith so people aren't allowed in the same way whiteness is allowed individualism or individuality rather blackness isn't afforded that so the moment you change your hair you've entered into like being a Beyonce or you've entered into being a Bob Marley you can't just simply just be you having a different hairstyle so I think that the more Sally episodes the more conversations that people are having whether it's through animation whether it's through books the more conversations we're having about these awkward situations I think that that's when we'll start to make progress and I would certainly urge any listeners to this podcast to go and listen to these videos because it might feel uncomfortable and you might think oh well you know this is an attack on HR Mm. it's not Mm -hmm. an attack on HR Mm -hmm. this is not about HR people specifically Mm -hmm. but also I think the more important thing to be asking yourself is why this is engaging so many people, Mm -hmm. why these videos are generating such a response because every tweet has thousands of likes, Mm -hmm. every tweet has thousands of retweets. And then to be saying, well, what do I do to make sure that I am not being Sally in HR? That's what we want to avoid. How can I do it? I think another really interesting question here, and we are talking about responsibility a lot, is where that responsibility for changing this culture lies. We've talked about how important that is, but I think as well there is a real risk that you can go to the one black person in your organisation and say, oh, do you want to spearhead our diversity and inclusion Mm -hmm. initiative because you feel like you want to include them Mm -hmm. and obviously it should be that. Then is it their responsibility to be delivering Mm. on this? I think it was Audre Lorde who said she was a black feminist writer. She said, it's not the duty of the oppressed to educate the oppressor. So therefore, I think that there has to be an empowerment of white people, basically, within the workforce. They have to empower themselves to be like, you know what, I'm going to go out, I'm going to do my research. And while I'm doing that research, just be like sensitive to the fact that I don't want to speak over people. But at least let me come with a base understanding first, because that's one of the most hurtful things when someone comes over and goes, teach me what I'm doing wrong. Teach me about racism. Where do we start? Yeah. But if someone comes to you and goes, you know what, I've read this and I'm trying to work my way through it. 
how would you advise that I do this next step? Then we know that we're starting from somewhere. So I think that everyone needs to focus on starting from somewhere. It's not something that's going to happen overnight. And I wouldn't even encourage for initiatives and committees to be formed until everyone has gone and done some individual learning or unlearning. One thing I do always ask people who come on the mm-hmm. podcast is whether they have any practical advice for listeners. I think you've given us a lot mm-hmm. already, but if there is anything more that you would say to people who are listening to this and saying, I don't want to be Sally, what can I do to make sure that I'm not being Sally? Mm. What would you say? Read. I'd say read and not in an elitist way because I know that some people don't feel like they have the capacity for that or the ability for that. So there are audio books of the same books. You know, one of the ones that I'm really proud of is Rennie Edo Lodge. Why I'm no longer talking to white people about race. That is instrumental, I think, as anybody who's really trying to delve into the micro and macro aggressions that we have within society, most especially British society. That's a great place to start. And then if, you know, that wets your palate, then you can go and start researching other books. I've One that I really, really recommend is how Europe underdeveloped Africa. Because again, that will start to explain how whiteness has become the central narrative to every conversation that we have and therefore the central conversation in every workplace. And then I think we'll understand more why it's so unfair to say well this is Britain if you want to be here you have to do it this way and understand that actually there are so many cultures ethnicities nationalities that contributed to this country being what it is so those are my two books I'd say start from there they might make you feel uncomfortable it might bruise your ego but I ultimately believe on a spiritual perspective that for us to grow as human beings there has to be a death of the ego in a particular way we could have to take our feelings out of it and just look at how we can help our world at large become better and those two books would help well for one i am looking very much forward to seeing what sally in hr does next i would love to see her an employment tribunal <laughs> i've got to say i think i, I can't see it ending any other way i want i want to see i want like a half hour slot that is just in the room at sally's employment tribunal you can hear kalechi okafor on the say your mind podcast you can follow her on twitter on instagram i would thoroughly recommend it thank you so much thank for coming you. in today It would be an understatement to say the times we're living in are tumultuous, politically, but also economically. With money worries affecting the majority of us and the conversation opening up, I've come to the CIPD Reward Conference in Birmingham. First, I spoke to Charles Cotton, Performance and Reward Advisor at the CIPD, to find out how AHR teams can address the feeling in a workforce of wanting a pay rise. Well, one way is looking at how the organisation is performing, reviewing its strategy and how it designs work and jobs and tasks to see whether you can actually improve employee productivity because if you can improve employee productivity then you can generate more revenue and you can afford to pay your employees more money. However, improving productivity can you know, take years so it's not a quick fix. What can help in the short term are things like employee benefits which can help stretch the value of the pound that employees earn so that they're less likely to fall into financial difficulty. 
So that's important. However, what really matters is earning a decent amount of money, and that's where looking for productivity improvements is so important. Because I've got an image of that employee in my head who's going on their intranet, seeing mm. lots of benefits, lots of things that are available to them, but feeling disgruntled at the fact that maybe they're not getting paid enough. It seems like what you just said is actually there is a link between the not completely siloed and mutually exclusive actually benefits are in part there to help them stretch their money further. Do you think this is a communication issue? Well, often you find that a lot of the research around employee benefits flounders when researchers ask employees which benefits they value the most. Many of them actually are unaware of the different types of benefits that are on offer to them, especially in a large organisation. You talk to them about life insurance, you talk to them about company car, private medical insurance. And it's only certain benefits that employees will recognise. Oh, I get, you know, I get a company car. They might not know about the company bicycle scheme or the hardship loan or the company choir, all these other types of benefits that the organisation provides. So do you think there might be a kind of growing desire among the UK workforce for a pay rise, given the climate that we're in at the moment? Is Britain due a pay rise, do you think? Well, according to the Bank of England, the last time people's pay was so low in real terms, was it, um, not so, so since the um, end of the Napoleonic Wars. So it's an unprecedented period. It's been a while then. <laughs> yes, it's, you know, we're still not back to 2008 in terms of pay in real terms. You know, there has been movement at the top of the pay scale and there has been movement at the bottom of the pay scale, but for those people in between, nothing's really changed in real terms. So yes, we do need a pay rise. And if we think about how we can improve productivity by um, improving the quality of our services and products because if we can, then we can charge more for it. So yes, there's the option of providing benefits and rewards but what if employees continue to demand a pay rise? I met Nicola Wells, Global Awards Director at Unilever to find out what her company would do. I think that's where we're playing at the moment and piloting with a more youth flex because it isn't always easy. Business need and, and cost pressures on businesses mean that we don't see huge pay rises particularly in the Western Europe, particularly in the UK. And I think typically you want a pay rise at the point that there's a big change in your life. You know, you suddenly find out you're expecting a baby or you suddenly want to buy a house or you want to go on that holiday, dream holiday. But it's there's some trigger normally. That's the point where people look for another job, typically, because that's how they get a bigger bump up. And if we can look at a much more flexible, allowing you to take your bonus potentially as cash that year... That might help. That can help mitigate the individual, help you keep your talent in place, etc. So do you think money does actually have a part to play within the reward sphere? Because a lot of studies have said, you know, money isn't a motivator anymore. People want experiences, people want lifestyle vouchers, whatever. Has that been exaggerated? When I talk to my niece, she's 19. She's not interested in the level of money, but she hasn't yet hit really having to look after herself. I mean that politely. You know, I think actually if you go out and you have to start knowing that I've got to pay my rent I need to put food on the table there's a level so it's back to some of the traditional things of Maslow's hierarchy is it a motivator no but when it's not at the right place it's quite a significant demotivator and in modern day particularly now it's a it becomes a well-being issue so it really stresses people so it still has a part to play I don't think we can just 
push it aside and say all people want is development, training and experiences. And I think what we see in the press, I'm not saying is wrong, I think the new generation are definitely asking for experiences. They don't, you know, which individual when you talk to who is between the age of up to 30 is saying they're going to stay in a company for more than five, ten years? They're not. You know, that's not where they start. Some years ago, people did. So I think it is changing but there's a baseline. You have to pay your rent. You need to, you know, people want to have a holiday every year. They want to have, you know, the latest iPhone or the latest technology gadget. That all costs money. I then met with Deepa Mystery Candola, Head of Flexible Benefit Services at LCP. And interestingly, she very much sees the value in benefits and rewards. The key thing here is that rewards and benefits have a massive role to play. You know, we think cash is king, but the reality is our people really value an employer who can give them a range of benefits, including a pension, you know, that can help them through different stages of their lifestyle. So you might be a young millennial, you know, and you're saving towards a deposit for a house, and you might value your employer providing you with medical care and insurances and an opportunity to save for a mortgage. For example, or like me, you might be hitting your 40s, you've got a young family and you value your employer giving you holiday and, you know, more time off with you, your family, but also the opportunity to save for retirement. So benefits have a real role to play in an employee's life on a day-to-day basis and can really enhance the pay packet. So if we think about it, if somebody's earning, let's say, 50 grand a year and their salary increases by 3%, their benefits will go up by that value as well, year on year. And, you know, I I think sometimes employers fail in communicating that to their people. But these are benefits that if the employer didn't offer them, the employer would have to go out and buy them themselves. Okay, so it's actually a case of communication in that sense, because, you know, employees who are disgruntled, they think, why haven't I got a pay rise in years? They're giving me all of these benefits, but why can't they just spend that money on giving me the pay rise I want. Do you think that actually there is more of a solid link and it's a case of communicating that to them? Yeah, so I think a lot of the time it's employers firstly not looking at their employee data. So who who are my people? What's their demographic? What age? What are they earning? Where, where do they live? Do they have ageing parents to take care of and children so they're in the sandwich generation? Look at your people and then communicate to them accordingly. You know, so we talk about insured benefits, but if you're off long-term sick, you're not going to get a salary if you didn't have an insurance in place. But your employer gives you an insurance and gives you sick pay and gives you death cover. So are we communicating the value of those benefits? Probably not. So there's a massive issue there. And I bet you your employees would value it then, you know, if they understood this is going to impact my day-to-day. Financial well-being is a really big topic at the minute. What role do you think employers have to play in the anxiety surrounding salary and surrounding money? Yeah, so I've just come out of a panel discussion on that. Uh, Lots of stats to say, you know, uh, stressed out workers are less productive and so forth, and you can get that all over the place. I think employers need to define what their strategy is first. You know, so some traditional firms or some employers may be of the view... It's not my role to understand what's going on in the individual's day-to-day financial issues. It's a personal matter. I pay them well, let them manage it. Other employers may be of the view that, no, I know there's a debt issue within my organisation and I want to help them because culturally that's who we are. Whereas others may be of the view that, 
okay, let's put in all the tools we can, so from mental health first aid training for our line managers to recognise the signs of stress, to debt management solutions, to good short-term saving solution, to long-term retirement planning, to good you know, health-ish things like yoga at lunchtime and massage in the office and so forth. And they might just say, actually, I want to do all of those things. So I think for HR... The key thing is to define their strategy of what good well-being means for their organisation. And then from there, they can figure out whether it's financial well-being, health well-being, all of the above or none of the above. Mm -hmm. So I guess we're in such an economically uncertain time at the minute. And obviously, pay isn't keeping up with inflation. Do you think Britain is due a pay rise? Do you see that happening anytime soon? So I think employers are finding efficiencies within their HR function, so their operational costs. So hopefully in the next three to five years, who knows? We can hope. We can hope. (laughs) So, so, you know, having worked with a lot of operational boards, we we know and we can see that lots of companies are streamlining what they're doing, questioning their own processes. So where there's duplication, where could we save money? And eventually those efficiencies will generate savings which, in turn, can be passed down to their people in one shape or form. And finally, it's time for Tim's Pointers with Tim Pointer. Here to deal with a haunting issue is the man of the month. How are you doing today, Tim? I am tippity-top. How are you? Tippity-top-top-top. I'm good, yeah. We've got a query from a listener who is having, I think, what is now a very common problem around the recruitment area. So our listener writes in and they say, I recently applied for a new job and I got a decent way through the interview process. I was invited for a first and then for a second interview and demonstrated my skill set by completing several time consuming asks that my recruiter asked of me. The end of our second interview, it was very upbeat. I left feeling confident that I had done my best and they said they would let me know by the end of the week. It's now been two weeks and I've heard nothing from them despite sending a follow up email. I feel really deflated after, you know, getting to the final stage and not hearing anything at all. Should I just assume that I didn't get it and move on? Or is there anything more I can do? So this is someone who has been ghosted by a potential employer. And firstly, well done you, because, you know, you prepared well for that interview process. You committed the time. You put a huge amount of energy into it. And you came out knowing you had done your best. Fantastic. You cannot ask anything more of yourself. And you did something extra. You followed up. Hmm. And it's really noticeable, having interviewed a few people over the years, that extra energy, that extra sense of commitment when someone does follow up and says, you know, really enjoyed the interview, was thinking more about what we were talking about. And if we'd had more time, I would have added this to the conversation or I've done some research and I think there's an opportunity here. It just really demonstrates the thought, the commitment, the energy that that individual would bring to the team. So you should feel super, super proud of yourself for everything that you put into it. You're not the problem. Mm. (laughs) And so often in this situation, there are other things going on that you just don't know anything about. And it might be about the the individual that's carrying out the recruitment. It it might be about the broader organisation, design, conversation, financial sign-off that's required, the fact it's a global company and actually that that level of role needs to go somewhere else in the machine in order to get signed off. There are so many reasons why things can, can go really, really slow. And the first thought that went into my head when I heard these words was, I feel your pain. And I'm going to give you an example. I once experienced a 12-month wait between being approached for a role and starting as a permanent employee 
in that role. Were you in Wait. MI5? Because that's like, because I've heard that they do really long security checks. I know someone who had to wait for eight months to that's get their background checks done. At what point done. do you just assume that they're not getting back to you? Like, this person after two weeks is like, you know what, maybe I'm not going to hear back. You got an email like 12 months later. How did, what, how did it, you react? It wasn't quite 12 months well, without any sort of okay, sips good. of water in between. Good. But the whole process was 12 months from approach through to permanent contract. Wow. I really hope that Starboard is just actually, it's a ruse. Now I say it, Starboard <laughs> seems like that's definitely a spy company. We've learned something today. Okay, so I can neither confirm nor deny. Okay, you can, but you can feel the pain of Absolute, this person. Absolutely. So you might also be a spy. So yeah, exactly. We don't know. So I think, look, you have done everything that you can do. It is now out of your hands. Continue to go about your job search and put this great experience to one hand. I know it's been a difficult experience, but I'm saying it's a great experience because you absolutely did everything that you can do. And that's what you have to take from this. They might come back in two weeks' time and say, terribly sorry, it was a heck of a mess and we've now sorted it out. And, you know, in some professions, this is even more common than in others. If anybody works in the entertainment industry, they'll know the way that actors are treated, for example, yeah, sure. when they turn up for interviews, they're called auditions, and they will, you know, the, the classic, don't phone us, we'll phone you. Mm. And I do feel that some of that approach is leaking into other sectors quite quickly. And it kind of comes with a more gig economy when it's just we'll turn you on and we'll turn you off exactly when we choose to. And I'm concerned that some of those behaviours is then leaking into how we treat all hires. I would add one final thing. Don't treat people like this. Yeah, please give people feedback. This is a real bugbear of mine, actually. Like, if someone goes to interview with you and you actually sit across in the room with another person, you have a human connection with them, and they then ask you for feedback, it's going to take five minutes of your time. Sorry. See, no, but coming into the job market, I always thought that receiving a rejection was, like, a luxury. Yeah. You know? It's like, you either get the job or I will never hear from you again. When I got my first rejection... I was like, thank you. <laughs> you know what? You've acknowledged that I am here, yeah. that I emailed you. Like, wow, thank you. Like, it shouldn't be like that. That should be a basic right if you've put a lot of time and energy like this person obviously has. Can we validate people's existence, please? Please. Like, that's the, the least. <laughs> I think that's a great point to end on. Validate people's existence. Tim, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. And that's it for this episode of That HR Podcast. And for me, it's goodbye as the host of That HR Podcast. I'm just letting a little silence happen while I'm broken in the corner right now. I'm so sad. Why are you leaving me? (laughs) Well, Lauren, at the end of April, after three glorious, happy years at People Management, I am going to start on a new adventure. But tragically, that does mean I have to leave this amazing audio treat behind as well. I'm going to miss doing this very much. It's one of my favourite things about the job. But I am confident that, you know, I am leaving the podcast in the best possible hands with you. Thanks. And actually, now I'm going to have to announce a new segment, which I just thought of this second, which is just people calling in just to ask questions or whatever. But it's just you putting on different (laughs) accents. (laughs) Is that something that you'd maybe be interested in? I'm certainly very excited to just put my feet up and start enjoying this as a listener rather than as a contributor. Well, Emily, luckily for you, you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud and on our website, peoplemanagement.co.uk. In fact, why not rate us while you're at it? For the last time then, my name is Emily Burt. And I'm still Lauren Brown. 
And the producer was Anushka Tate at Rethink Audio.